Good morning, church. As the children are making their way to their classes, if you have your Bibles and hope that you do, please turn in them to the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. We're continuing our study through this book. The 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, um, many Bible scholars call it the theological heart of this book. Because it's in this chapter where it is explained to us why the church faces the hostility of the world in which we live, and how God protects the church and provides for the church, and how he will ultimately save her in the midst of this world. Chapter 12, as we'll see, uses battlefield and wartime imagery to describe the war that we're in today against our enemies, sin and evil. As I mentioned last week, the end of chapter 11 really kind of put a capstone on one major portion of the vision in the book of Revelation. And chapter 12 now begins a new, another major part of the vision. Chapters 12 through 14 as we'll unpack them over the next few weeks, is one big interlude. We've seen two of these interludes already. One of them, in chapter 7, came between the 6th and the 7th seal. The other interlude that we just finished last week came between the 6th and the 7th trumpet. But now the 7th trumpet has been blown. And the very end of the world, namely... Uh, The return of Christ and the final judgment has been portrayed at the end of chapter 11. So now John is brought into another part of the vision by Jesus. And now Jesus has John back up to the 30,000 foot level to observe the condition of the church in the world today. How we got here. How we find ourselves engaged in this battle. And how God will ensure that the battle that we're in today will one day be won and completely finished as we stand victorious with our King. Commentator Scott Duvall says this of chapters 12 and 14, that they form a grand interlude detailing the cosmic conflict between God and the forces of evil, as well as God's vindication of his people and judgment of the unrighteous. And so let's read. I want to read all of chapter 12. This morning we're just going to be focusing on the first six verses. You didn't really think we were going to make it all the way through the chapter, did you? I didn't think so. Uh, but I do want us to read the whole chapter to be able to see those first six verses in their proper context. So, church, this is God's word. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. 
She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their own lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to, help the, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this book that we hold in our hands. We thank you, Lord, that you have providentially ensured that throughout the ages, this book that we hold in our hands today, we can trust that this is your very breath. This is your word. And so, Father, what we need this morning is not the words of man, but we need your words. And so we thank you for it, and we ask that you'd speak to us from it. Father, I pray that you would remove me from the focus of every person in this room and that all of our hearts and minds would be focused on you, Lord. And that, Father, those whom you have called to yourself through faith in Jesus Christ would submit themselves to your leadership and your sovereign plan for their life. And, Father, those who don't yet know you through faith in Christ, Father, would the beauty of the gospel ring loud and clear even through this passage. We pray this in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we said, chapter 12 is the front end of a very long, really the longest interlude in the book of Revelation, right in between the pronouncements of judgments. So we finished the seal judgments. We've talked about what they were. We finished the trumpet judgments last week. We talked about what they all were. Next to come are the bowl judgments. But before we get there, there is this interlude in chapters 12 through 14. And so here's how this interlude is going to progress. In chapter 12, that we'll cover this week and the next couple of weeks, we have this depiction of a war between God and Satan, between God's angels and God's people and Satan's angels and his 
demons. In chapter 13, Satan has two beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet, who will engage in this war and will focus their energies on terrorizing God's people, us, the church. And then in chapter 14, we'll see victory. Victory of the Lamb, who is Jesus, and victory of the church. Now, chapter 12 itself can be divided into three sections, and we're just going to cover one section each week over the next couple of weeks. These first six verses tell us who the combatants are in this battle, specifically the woman, the son, and the dragon. Verses 7 through 12 show us the first battlefield, which is heaven. It focuses on the, the war in heaven. And then the remaining verses, verses 13 through 17, show us the second battlefield and focus its energies on the war on earth. So today we're just looking at the first part, the introduction of the combatants, the woman, the son, and the dragon in this war. Now these combatants are introduced to us in this vision by way of two signs in heaven. We're told in verse 1 that John sees a great sign in heaven, and that will be the woman, And then in verse 3, we're told that there is another sign that is in heaven. And that turns out to be the great red dragon. So who is this woman, first and foremost? Well, on the surface, some might think that she is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because after all, she's pregnant and she gives birth, as we're told in verse 5, to a male child. Not just a male child, but one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. that is clearly a reference to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so we might be tempted to think that this is Jesus' mother, which is Mary. But it can't be her, primarily because of what we see in verse 17 at the very end of the chapter, where it says this, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Now, who are the rest of her offspring? Well, it can't just be Jesus' half-brothers. Uh, those children who were born to Mary after Jesus was born, of which we know from Scripture is there to be at least six of them, this, the, their offspring can't be uh, just limited to those. In fact, we're told in the second half of verse 17 who the rest of her offspring are. They are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so the rest of her offspring is referring to the church. And so if the rest of her offspring is the church, then obviously this can't be Mary. So is she? Who is she? Well, she is a symbolic picture of not just the physical woman who gives birth to Jesus, but the community of faith that gives birth to the Messiah. Prior to Jesus' arrival on earth, She is the true Israel, not just national, physical, ethnic Israel, but the Israel of faith, the the faithful remnant of Israel who are believing those Old Testament prophecies of a Messiah who would come to save his people from their sins. And so prior to Jesus' arrival, she is true Israel, but after Jesus' arrival, she is the church. The people of faith. The people of faith who profess faith in Jesus Christ and his death and subsequent resurrection 
as their only hope for forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. Now, what do we see from the text that leads us to this conclusion? Well, look at the description of her in verses 1 and 2. She's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So it's very figurative language here that is being used. So she's, she's clothed with the sun, which refers to her radiance and her beauty, as well as her importance in God's plans. The moon is under her feet, refers to her authority, the, the rule of the woman and her influence over the world and over the earth. She's wearing a crown of 12 stars, symbolizing that she is royalty and she reigns in some way. The 12 stars, uh, probably referring to either uh, the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament or the 12 apostles in the New Testament, probably both. And what do we make of her being pregnant and crying out in birth pains and, and the agony of giving birth? What are we to make of that? Well, Several times in the Old Testament, we see Israel being referred to as a woman in child pains, as if about to give birth. Bible scholars refer to this as the messianic woes. True Israel longing for and looking for the coming of the Savior, the Messiah, who would save, her, God, save God's people. Uh, listen to Isaiah chapter 26 and the prophecy of Israel and how the prophet refers to Israel. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. So the community of faith in the Old Testament, the, the remnant of uh, spiritual Israel, the remnant of faithful Israel, is likened to a, a pregnant woman who is enduring uh, these birth pangs, but not giving birth, at least not yet. Up to this point, there, it's, it's false labor. Uh, she's, she's pregnant and she's got these pains, but not yet giving birth. And this continues century after century after century for the Israelites. But now in the depiction of this vision in chapter 12 of Revelation, now these birth pangs have become quite intense leading up to the birth of the Messiah. If you've ever been in a delivery room, either as a mom or a dad or a nurse or whatever, you know that the closer you get to the birth, the worse the birth pangs are. Moms know this from experience. Dads know this from the expression on mom's face, right? But this is what's happening here. And it results in the first advent of Jesus Christ, the birth of the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. And parenthetically, we're going to see it happen again. The closer we get to the second advent of Christ, the return of Christ, the church, the people of God will again more and more intensely feel the birth pangs as we await the return of Christ, his second coming. But here we have 
the birth pains of this community of faith leading up to the first advent of Jesus. And so this woman represents for us the community of faith that gives birth to the Messiah. These are the covenant people of God. And I would argue that prior to verse 5, where Jesus is born, depicted as being born, she is the true Israel. The Israel of faith, the faithful remnant of the people of God. And after verse 5, after Jesus' birth, she is the church. She and her offspring are the church. And so what this mother and her offspring endure in chapter 12 is very important for us to come to grips with and understand because it is a picture of what we are enduring as the church today. And it's a picture of what we will continue to endure in the days to come leading up to the return of Christ. But before we get to verse 5 and the actual birth of Jesus, we're introduced to another character in this grand story of John's vision, and this time through the use of another sign. Look at verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Now the identity of this dragon is no secret, because just as we read later in verse 9, his identity is stated explicitly that he is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So this is Satan, depicted as a great red dragon. He's great, the, uh, the, the Greek word megos, which means he's big. In the NIV, it calls him the enormous red dragon. And so he's not pictured here as a little guy in a red suit with a pitchfork standing on your shoulder. Instead, he is depicted as an enormous serpent, a great red dragon. He's red probably because he kills men and women. That's probably a reference to the blood that he spills, the blood of mankind. He's got seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, the number seven being symbolic of perfection, the number 10 being symbolic, again, of completeness. Horns in Scripture typically refer to strength. So he's got 10 horns, and he's got seven diadems. The seven diadems are literally seven little crowns, mimicking the seven crowns of Jesus. But these are just little diadems. They're miniature crowns. So this is referring to the dragon's rule. He too has a kingdom, and he's ruling in his kingdom. The description of this great red dragon is reminiscent of the fourth beast from Daniel 7, the fourth kingdom, that, uh, the fourth empire that is spoken of there. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 13, where John sees the Antichrist coming up out of the sea which is also, by the way, described as having seven heads and ten horns. So more to come on that. The incredible strength and, and enormous size of this dragon is depicted for us and highlighted for us in the first half of the next verse, verse 4. We're told that his tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them down to earth. Now, there are a variety, as you would probably imagine, there are a variety of explanations as to what that actually means, the, that his tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven down to earth. Uh, one of the commentators that I 
read is George Ladd. And uh, Ladd sees no reason to see here anything other than that this is referring to the fact that this dragon is big. So big and so enormous that when he sweeps his tail, a third of the stars of heaven are cast down to the earth. Others see a bit more imagery at play here. Some say that this is a reference back to Daniel chapter 8, where the stars in that passage are specifically referring to the people of God. That the vision of the stars being swept out of heaven to the earth is a figurative picture, a figurative portrayal of God's people being attacked on earth. And so you you get the picture. So there's a third of the stars that are swept out of heaven and cast to earth, and that that's a figurative picture, that's a symbolic picture of God's people being attacked on earth. And so according to that understanding, this is a picture of the persecution of God's people. First, we see this historically at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century leading up to the birth of Christ. He was the the Greek uh, ruler of the Seleucid Empire of modern-day Syria. And then we also see this being fulfilled in the first century under the rule of the Caesars during the time of Jesus and John as they persecuted the church. And, of course, we see it today at the hands of an increasingly secular and pluralistic world that is increasingly hostile to the gospel. And so they would say that this is a picture of the persecution of the church. And then there are still others that would argue that this picture of the the, the dragon sweeping its tail and causing a third of the stars to be swept out of heaven and down to earth to be symbolic of Satan leading a great rebellion of angels to defy God, and in response to that, that results in them being cast down to the earth. And that certainly seems to make sense, because in Revelation, typically, usually, not always, but usually, stars are symbolic of angels. Nevertheless, I think that the persecution explanation is the most likely here. Although I could very easily be convinced of the veracity of these other explanations. But for me, I think the persecution explanation fits the context of this vision the best. Because look at the second half of verse 4. What does it say? And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. He wants to destroy the Messiah. He wants to devour the Messiah. And certainly, I think that's the lesson that we're meant to walk away from with this dragon. That the aim of this dragon is to destroy Christ. It's to destroy the Messiah. And if he can't destroy the Messiah, destroy his church, destroy his bride, his people. Satan's greatest goal is to kill Jesus, destroy the Messiah, and derail and disrupt his plan to redeem lost sinners like us back to God. That's his greatest goal. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. We see it right after Jesus' birth in Matthew 2. And what does King Herod do? 
He issues a, a decree that all the children two years old and younger would be killed in Bethlehem. That whole region. Satan was trying to kill Jesus. We see it in Matthew chapter 4 as Jesus is led into the wilderness. And he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. We see it in Gethsemane as, Gethsemane as Jesus prays before his arrest. And Satan attacks him and tries to lead him away from the cross. And then, of course, we see it at Calvary as well. In reality, this is the curse of the fall being played out for us. You remember, after the fall of man, God came and pronounced curses on the woman and the man. But he also pronounced a curse on the serpent. And he said to that serpent, He, speaking of Christ, he shall bruise your head serpent he's going to bruise your head and that was a symbolic picture of the crucifixion that that when jesus died for the sins of man he crushed the head of satan but he said to the serpent you shall strike his heel and in the serpent figuratively pictured as striking jesus's heel it's not a little nip it's meant to kill him it's meant to devour him. This has been Satan's goal since the garden to destroy the Son of God. And here we see it again in this terrible picture of this great red dragon who is standing before this woman about to give birth, ready to devour the child, literally to eat it when it comes out. Satan wants to destroy Jesus and stop him from accomplishing his redemptive mission. And as we'll see, and the remainder of chapter 12, next week and the week after, that when he is unsuccessful at that, he turns his focus to the church, the people of God. And so now the child is born. In verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is undeniably the Lord Jesus. This is the advent of the Messiah. Jesus has come, Emmanuel, God with us, and God now as one of us. And he is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is a reference to Psalm 2 where the psalmist says of the coming Messiah, you shall break them, that is your enemies, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is a reference to the authority and the dominion of this child who is born. That he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so now he's born. And the great red dragon is there, standing ready to devour him. What happens to the child? Second half of verse 5. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Isn't that interesting? There's no discussion of this child's life. There's no discussion of Jesus' earthly ministry and no discussion or even explanation here of his redemptive work at the cross just straight from his birth to his ascension. And the reason for this is because that's not the purpose of this particular vision in chapter 12. That was the purpose of the vision in chapter 5. You remember where we saw the lamb who was the only one who was worthy to take the scroll from the one who sat on the throne. Why? Because 
He was slain, and by his blood he ransomed the people for God from, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And thank God for Jesus' redemptive work at the cross. Praise the Lord for that redemptive work, because that is our only hope. That is the only hope for sinful rebels like you and I to be rescued from what we deserve and given what we don't deserve, which is eternal, everlasting life with our Creator. Our only hope for that is through Him who was slain and by His blood purchased a people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. Us. But that's not the purpose of this vision here in chapter 12. The purpose of this vision is to explain why God's people battle against this serpent in this world and how we can engage in that battle and what the outcome of that battle is going to be. And so this vision goes straight from the advent of Christ to the ascension of Christ, straight from his birth to him being risen to the right hand of the throne of God and skips everything else. A child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now we'll pick up the story next week in verses 7 through 12 as the setting now changes to heaven. And we see the war in heaven between God and the serpent, between God's angels and his demons. But now, before we get to that, our focus returns to the mother in verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So she flees into the wilderness. Now the wilderness in the scriptures always has the connotation of trial and tribulation. A place where evil lurks. A place where evil looks for every opportunity to cause pain and suffering and loss. We see this all throughout Scripture. Examples of this, whether it's the Israelites wandering in the Sinai Peninsula, the wilderness for 40 years they wander there, or whether it's Jesus who's led into the desert, literally led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Or whether it's the church of today that finds itself in another kind of wilderness. A wilderness of secular humanism and moral perversion and the like. Or whether it's the church in the tribulation of the future who will walk through a tribulation, a wilderness of great tribulation and persecution and even martyrdom. But in each of these wilderness experiences, though there is the presence of evil and trial and tribulation and pain, suffering and loss, though there is also the promise of God's protection and provision. Like the woman in this vision, who, remember, represents us represents the church, the church of today. What happens when she flees to the wilderness? She has a place prepared by God in which she is 
to be nourished for 1260 days. So here's, here's our primary takeaway from this, these first six verses. When God's people are in the wilderness, they can rely on the promise of God's spiritual protection and provision in the midst of that and at the end of that. She's in the wilderness. It's a place of trial and tribulation and a place where evil lurks and looks for opportunities to, to cause pain, suffering, and loss. And yet, she has a place prepared by God. And she is to be nourished there. And this is true for all of those wilderness experiences that we mentioned earlier. Consider the Israelites wandering the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years. Was it hard? Yeah. It was the desert. It was a trial. In one sense, it seemed as, like, seemed as though they, they went from the frying pan into the fire. Not only were they, uh, as soon as they're delivered from one aspect of evil, the evil of slavery in Egypt, they find themselves in another evil, the evil of the wilderness. A place that is hot and dry where there's no shelter, no water, and no food. But when God's people are in the wilderness, they can rest on the promise of God's protection and provision. So what did God do for them? He gave them manna from heaven. Literally bread falling from the skies. He told Moses to strike the rock. And he caused water to flow out for them to drink. He gave them his presence as they walked through the wilderness to protect them. And his presence was personified by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. What about Jesus in his wilderness, in that desert, when he was tempted by Satan not once not twice but three times he was hungry we know this because he didn't turn the rock into bread he was thirsty he was hot but after that third temptation we're told at the end of that passage Matthew four eleven, then the devil left him and behold angels came and were ministering to him why because when God's people or in the desert, they can rely on God's protection and provision. The same is true for the church today. As we walk through the wilderness of the 21st century in this country, we too have access to God's spiritual protection and provision. And Jesus seems to be pounding this truth into John in this vision. Because he portrays the same truth and these same promises over and over and over and over again. We've seen it many times already. We saw it in the two pictures of the church in chapter 7. Remember that? The first picture of the church being the church lined up as if in formation, ready to go into the tribulation. As if the tribulation was going to be like war, right? 
And then the second picture is that of the church coming out of the tribulation, that great uncountable multitude standing before the throne and before the Lamb from every tribe, language, tongue, and people. And those two pictures reminded us that though the time of tribulation will be hard and will be a trial, and for the church it will be a time of pain and suffering and great loss, yet God will spiritually protect her through it. We also saw this truth symbolized in that little scroll in chapter 10. Remember that John was told to eat, to eat that scroll that contained the prophecy. Remember we're told that it was bitter in his stomach, but it was sweet as honey in his mouth. And again, the meaning there was that God's sovereign plans for the church in the tribulation will be that she will endure much suffering and tribulation and pain, suffering, and loss, and even martyrdom, which, let's admit, is a bitter prophecy. And yet, she will be brought safely through, and God will sovereignly oversee her and spiritually protect her and ensure that she perseveres in the faith to the very end, which is a prophecy that is as sweet as honey to the mouth we also see this saw this portrayed in chapter 11 that we just finished we saw it in chapter 11 in two ways first in the picture of the temple being measured remember the temple temple was symbolic of the church and the measuring of the temple and the measuring of the church was symbolic that we are gods that which you own you measure and you you cordon off and that was symbolic and picturing that that God owns us and protects us as his own, no matter what's happening in the world around us. And then the second picture was in the story of the two witnesses and their experience of, of going through their time of persecution and ultimately death. But what does God do? He raises them to life and he escorts them up to heaven on a cloud. When God's people are in the wilderness, they can rely on the promise of God's spiritual protection and his perfect provision through it and at the end of it. And so when this woman who's symbolizing the church gets to the wilderness, she finds a place prepared for her by God, some kind of shelter from the sun, some sort of refuge from the heat and the elements, and the predators that are in the wilderness. And we're told that there she is to be nourished for 1260 days. God provides her with food and water and shelter and whatever else she needs as long as she lives in that wilderness. Now the meaning here is not that God provides her and protects her for 1260 days and then on the 1261st day God's protection and provision runs out that's it that's all she gets now instead what's being communicated here in that phrase is a long time that is cut short that's what we're to see when we see that phrase 1260 days it's a long time that's cut short we, this is the third time we've seen uh, that length of time referred to in the book of Revelation. 
We saw it in chapter 11, verse 2, where it was in the form of 42 months. In the next verse in chapter 11, verse 3, it was in 1260 days, like, like it is here. We'll see it again in chapter 12, verse 14, when it's referred to as time, times, and half a time. They're all communicating the same thing. And if we interpret them all literally, it, they all equal three and a half years. If we interpret them all figuratively, which I prefer, because then, again, this is apocalyptic literature, lifting the veil of something strange. And in apocalyptic literature, numbers are typically symbolic of something else. And here, they're symbolizing what? A long time that is cut short. A long time that is cut short. So we, we can understand what's happening here in one of two ways. Either these 1260 days are referring to the time between the advents of Christ, between his first coming and his return, and the wilderness that we are walking in in this day. Or it's referring to a time of tribulation in the future, a time in which God will pull a drawstring on the timeline of eternity and lead the church into a wilderness of great tribulation and persecution and martyrdom. But either way, the promise is the same. What's the promise? When God's people are in the wilderness, they can rely on God's spiritual protection and provision. Now, I happen to prefer the latter explanation that this is referring primarily to a great tribulation that will occur one day in which the church will endure and when God brings the world to an end. I prefer that alternative primarily because I see a connection between the 1260 days here in chapter 12 and the 42 months and the 1260 days in chapter 11. And when we covered those passages a few weeks ago, I explained then why I thought they referred to a future time of great tribulation. But anyway, since I prefer the futurist view in chapter 11, I should be theologically consistent and prefer the futurist view in chapter 12. But nevertheless, regardless, I do see ample application of this passage to the church today. Just like John's original audience the churches of Asia Minor in the first century would have seen very crystal clear application to the experience of the church in that day. Church, we are in a wilderness. A place of trial and tribulation. A place where evil lurks and looks for opportunities to cause pain, suffering, and loss, particularly upon the people of God. We're in a wilderness. But as we travel this wilderness, we are promised God's protection, spiritual protection, and His perfect provision. And the Scriptures are replete with the theme of this promise. And I want you to just listen to some of these scriptures as they describe the church walking 
in this wilderness of trial and tribulation, but still resting on the promise of God's presence and his protection and his provision as it does so. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. In John 16, as Jesus tells his disciples that when he is crucified, they, his disciples, will all scatter. He says, you guys are going to all scatter. You're going to leave me alone. And then Jesus says this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In me you will have peace. In the world, I'm sending you to the world. I'm not taking you out of it. I pray to the Father not to take you out of it. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And so you're going to be in that wilderness. And in the world, what will you have? Tribulation. But in me, you will have peace. Take heart. I've, overtaken the, I've overcome the world. In Acts chapter 14, Paul was preaching to some very young churches, some new churches in places like Iconium and, and, and Lystra. Churches that were in a storm of persecution and trial. And what does he preach to them? He preaches the gospel to them. But then he, he tells us the aim of his preaching in verse 22 of Acts 14. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And that was strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. That guys, you will enter the kingdom of God. But it's going to be through many trials and tribulations. You see, the way of the wilderness is bitter. But there is sweetness along the way. And certainly sweetness at the finish line. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self in this wilderness is wasting away what's happening. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. How is that happening? Verse 17. For this light momentary affliction. Oh, if we only knew the afflictions of Paul, that he would call them light and momentary. These light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Paul tells young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 2. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight 
And one of those weights that we need to lay aside, church, is the fact that we are enduring pain, suffering, and great loss in this wilderness. And, and so we lay that aside and the sin that so easily clings to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the wilderness of his cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Peter tells us in his first epistle, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What do we, what do we rejoice in? What did, he, what, what did he say before that that we rejoice in? Our grand inheritance that, that, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So we rejoice in that. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, we've been grieved by various trials. And then he reminds them again at the end of that epistle. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When God's people are in the wilderness, they can rest on the promise of God's spiritual protection and provision in the midst of it and at the end of it. We'll have much more to say about this war between God and Satan that is waged in chapter 12 as we unpack the next couple of sections over the next couple of weeks. But the main point of these two verses, these first six verses, is twofold. First, to recognize the fact that we are in the wilderness. To recognize that, that we're in a place of tribulation and trial, a place where evil look, lurks and, and, and looks for opportunities to cause pain, suffering, and loss. We've seen an example of it this very week. The United States House of Representatives did something this week that is beyond the pale of evil. Passing legislation that makes the murder of innocent babies the law of the land. Prior to this, it's just been the result of Supreme Court rulings. But they've just passed the first hurdle of it actually becoming codified in law all throughout the nine months of pregnancy. Now hopefully, prayerfully, the Senate will defeat that bill and stop the progress of that legislation, but if that's not a display of evil, I don't know what is. But evil is all around us in the world. Whether it's in the moral decay or the sexual perversion, the materialism, the greed for more, the love of comfort, the disregard for the abused and the poor, the racism and hatred of our fellow man. We could go on and on. But the reality is we don't have to look around us to see the evil in this wilderness because it's within us. It's in our flesh, indwelling sin in our own hearts 
reminds us daily that we're in a wilderness. Now, there are two natural human responses to recognizing that we're in a wilderness. One is to isolate ourselves, and the other is to emulate the wilderness. One is to insulate ourselves from the wilderness around us so that we might not be infected by it, and the other is to compromise and become like the wilderness around us. And we know that neither of these are options for the followers of Jesus. Because our responsibility in the wilderness is twofold, to be holy and to be faithful witnesses. See, we're called to reach the world with this gospel. We've been sent by God as ambassadors of Christ to take the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are also in the wilderness but who are headed for a Christless eternity apart from the gospel. And we're called to reach them with that good news. And so we cannot isolate ourselves from the wilderness But neither can we compromise and be like the wilderness around us because we're also called to be holy and to live faithfully, corum Deo, before the face of God. And in order for us to do those things, in order for us to be faithful witnesses, in order for us to be holy as He is holy, while we walk through the wilderness of this life, we must be reminded that we can rest. This is the second part of our application here. We must be reminded that we can rest on the promise of God's spiritual protection and provision in the midst of the wilderness and at the end of it to bring us home. God is with his children in the way of the wilderness. And his presence is a reminder that he will spiritually protect us and provide for us all the way through. Now, admittedly, God's protection and provision of us doesn't always look like we would have planned it to look, right? His spiritual protection of it, of us, probably does not look like what we would have planned, and his provision is probably not at the same time that we would have timed it, but his protection and his provision is always perfect, always perfect. And so we are called to trust in his sovereignty in that. That he will spiritually protect you and provide for you as his child. And give you everything that you need to be a faithful follower and a faithful witness for him. And here's the thing. His protection and his provision for his children in the midst of the wilderness of this day points forward to his spiritual protection, and his provision for the church of the future that will one day walk through a wilderness of great tribulation and persecution and martyrdom. And God's protection and provision, even for the church in that setting, will be perfect. Let's pray. As we close in prayer I just I want to speak a word to those who've not professed faith in Christ I'm not talking to those who think they might have been made holy through their church attendance or through their good works Father, show them the folly of that. That our sin and our rebellion against you, Lord, 
makes them utterly and completely lost. And Father, as they consider the coming judgment and the return of Christ, they ought not look at that with rejoicing, but with great fear. And Lord, I pray that those who sense that fear because of their own sin would recognize that their only way out from underneath deserved judgment and punishment is the cross of Christ. Father, we pray right now for those individuals in this room, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities that are in that place. God, would you give them the faith, the trust in Christ alone? Not in their own works, not in their church attendance, not in how much good they do and how hard they fight against bad, but they would trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen as their only hope. And Father, those whom you have saved by grace through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, would you remind us of the hope that we have in Christ, not just at the end of the journey. Oh, we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ at the end of our journey, that there is a place prepared for us. But Lord, we ask also that you would remind us of the hope that we have in the midst of the journey, that even as we walk in this wilderness, where evil lurks around every corner, even in the recesses of our own dark hearts, we have the hope of your spiritual protection and provision that you will see us home, that you will ensure that we persevere in the faith until Jesus returns or takes us home. And in that, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.